This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 16 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On the Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. And you're absolutely right when you summed it up that it's very much about education and taking people on that journey and not making it look scary, you know, making it look very practical. I need to bounce for another, um, just another quick meeting. I love this. I'm so glad that we met. Thank you. I had no idea it was going to be a podcast. That's the voice of my guest this week, Renee Weaver-Raquena. She's a financial literacy coach. I got to know about Renee through my colleague, actually, Remco Bergman, who actually featured in episode eight of On Another Track. What I loved about Renee was the way that she could explain financial terms in a very practical way. She has an amazing way of bringing financial things that are just scary to most of us into perspective. However, what I liked about Rene most was the way that she managed to tackle subjects that are just taboo with ease and aplomb. Listen as Rene removes the fog of financial literacy to make the way ahead clearer. I first started by asking Rene, what does her job entail? So I am a financial literacy coach and what I do is help people understand what was never taught in school about money and the banking system. So if you don't know anything about it and your parents never taught you because they didn't learn, you're destined to live the same lifestyle that they led. No better, no worse. So I help you change that. That's phenomenal because really what we're saying is there's a big dearth or there's a big, maybe an ignorance around financial literacy. Would would that be fair to say? And it's not necessarily people's fault, is it? No, it's not. You know, if someone's withholding information from you, it's not your fault if you don't know that it exists. Yeah, and so you did uh, allude to not learning it in school. Is that changing now with people starting to become more web aware, more financially aware, or do you think it's still a big uphill struggle at the moment? It's still a very big uphill struggle. In the U.S. here, there's only four states that require any sort of financial literacy inside of there. Underneath that, depending on your school system, they may opt to have some small program, but it's definitely not a core main subject like a math or a science, where both schools probably should make it a course uh, application. Yeah. Why do you think that that people shy away from financial uh, questions or anything to do with them financially? What do you think are the biggest stumbling blocks for somebody personally? I think that money is scary as a whole. Um, many people think of it as a bad thing, uh, but money is not a bad thing. It can be used in a bad way, but it can be used for good as well. And if you don't know which questions to ask, it's sometimes it feels overwhelming like the ocean. And you can't boil the ocean and you just don't know where to start. So that it's more based on fear, I would say. And so do you think there's some practical steps that somebody who is fearful of money, who's never dealt with it before, can take just in very simple, you know, maybe the first three steps of kind of walking almost, you know, because you don't run, do you, before you can walk and before you can crawl. So what would you say are the three kind of incremental steps that somebody can say, you know, take to become confident, at least of asking the questions? So one is if you're working, um, just understand what your paycheck looks like. Take a look at the statement that you received and try to understand each of the lines. 
They're broken up into sections. You know how much you're earning, but really try to understand the taxes. Whatever country you're in, there are taxes. Try to understand what those little lines mean. And those little lines are all just codes. But if you can understand the basic concept of why they're taking that money out and where it's going, that's a good start. And then the second one would be understand how much you're bringing home and then where you're spending your money. A lot of people don't pay attention to where they're spending. They're thinking that money's coming in every week or every two weeks. And as long as I see something there or it's coming, I just spend endlessly without consciously knowing where are the better things that I need to spend my money on and what should I not spend money on. Great practical advice. Yeah. I I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, you see these documents every month and you're just happy to have the money because maybe you're, you're living from paycheck to paycheck, but actually breaking it down and taking some time to invest in understanding where that's coming from and what that's what's happening to that money is really, really important. Do you think, um, do you feel that the, the kind of, not necessarily the ignorance, I keep using that word, but maybe this sort of um, the blindness, the money blindness is across all stratas of society or do you find it affects certain people in, in your opinion? I think it can be across all because if you think about it, people underneath whatever country's poverty line there is, mm-hmm. they just, don't have much discretion about how they use money because they just don't have enough. And then there's the middle class who they have some money. However, they were never taught how to properly use it. And then there's the wealthy. And sometimes you see even celebrities. Think about professional athletes. You'll find that some of them or many of them, depending on which association it is, they'll be bankrupt after they're retiring. So it can happen in any economic class if you're not presented with proper information. And also, from your experience, and I know that you've been involved with finances or the financial system for quite a few years, I call you a bit of a stare, actually. When I looked at your LinkedIn profile, you had that four or five, six, seven years at different organizations. So you've really picked up a great um, wealth of knowledge being in the financial industry. And so I suppose, what do you see as the biggest mistakes that people make? I mean, you did allude to the fact that people can still have millions in the bank, but still be bankrupt. You know, is it is it a, a blind ignorance? Is it, you know, that they are still frightened to really face up to the reality of what they're spending? Or do you think they're looking for something else in their life? Is it is it a crux for something else? I think money can be a crutch because just like comfort food, if you're having a bad day, uh, anything happened you know, you want to go shopping. That makes you feel good sometimes. And it could be Amazon, even during COVID and quarantine, right? Didn't Jeff Bezos become the richest person in the world during quarantine? It's because everybody was on Amazon. But you know, that that people placate whatever hole they have in their core. Um, but I do think that you have to be careful and try to understand where all of that money is going, but just be conscious about it. But I do believe that How you think about money and your relationship individually with money comes from your belief system. And a lot of times your belief system comes from your family. So whatever your family felt about money is generally what you start out and believe about money, whether right or wrong. Yeah, no, you make a really good point because we learn the innate things as children from our family, from our parents and what have you. And then there are little types of witticisms or the way they do something or how they react to a situation. So I want to ask you a question. If you've got somebody who's gone down the wrong sort of road, so to speak, they've gotten themselves into you know, pretty severe financial difficulties. Maybe they have three credit cards maxed out, 10 grand each. They've got a mortgage. They've got the two car payments. 
you know, they're trying to send their kids to school, but they're overwhelmed. Where would you start in the process? What, how would you break that process down and start to get them on the right roadmap? So generally what I do with people is I advise them to, we have a credit reporting system that's called FICO and it's a FICO score. And here we're able to run our report for free once every 12 rolling months. So February to February, whatever month it is. Always keep abreast of that so that you know what's going into your credit report because sometimes there are misreportings. And that can happen from any number of agencies. There's a lot of information and data constantly moving. But you want to understand what's outstanding for you. Now you have your bills that come in the mail or maybe they're electronic, but you also want to know what's on that credit report. You may be missing something. So get your hands on that. And there are a couple of different reporting agencies. So one you can log into this 12-month period, six months from now, try the other one. This way you can stay abreast of the new information that's coming in. But I would sit with them and go through a budgeting process so that we know what's coming in, what's going out, and then assess all of the debt that they have. And in order to get them out of debt quickly, we need to make some math moves. So line up all of the credit cards, all of the debt, but look at the interest rates because rates are what's causing you from paying down your balance. So the higher the interest rate, the longer it will take you to pay, but it's doubling very quickly. So I'll teach them to do that. And then we'll reallocate whatever money that they're currently paying, probably differently strategically, and that will make the balance come down faster. But they have to understand that this is now a priority getting out of debt. You may have to eliminate Starbucks for a while, or you may have to eliminate the movie theater when they're back open because it's more important to be out of debt than to have fun right now. You said that so well, because I mean, again, it's all about feeling good, isn't it? It's changing the perception of money and the fact that you're out of control and you want to regain a little bit of control. And like you said, you know, for the credit card with the highest interest rate is the one that's costing you the most tackle at least that if that's the one you want to tackle to see that come down or maybe tackle the smallest one. Maybe I've got that wrong. Do you tackle the smallest one sometimes to see a quick win? What what do you think on that? So that there are two methods and one is more emotional and the other was more fiscal. So the emotional one says it's a small balance. I want to see a win very quickly. Let me get rid of that one. That's okay. If that's what you have to do, almost like cutting an addiction, right? Cold Turkey. However, over the long period of time, there's something called the rule of 72. And it tells you how quickly the debt that you owe will double. It works the same way with investing. But debt, the interest rates are generally higher. So if you look at these credit cards, which are 24, 25, 26%, divide that number, whatever the interest rate is, into the number of 72. That's how quickly your debt will double. So it could be doubling two and a half, three years at a time. Whereas the money that you're saving and investing might take much longer to double. So our goal is to get you out of debt as quickly as possible, focus on the highest interest rates first, apply as much extra money that you have there. Don't worry about the little balances. They're not growing because their interest rates are small. So it's all about the interest rate, less about the balance. Would you then adapt your strategy to however that person's reacting? So if they need that emotional quick win, 
say, okay, let's work together and get that small one out of the way so you feel as if you're going to win. But this, the, the Rule of 72, I really like. I mean, that's come that's come from years of experience in the industry, isn't it? You've kind of figured <laughs> that out. That's brilliant. Okay, so say, um, and again, I like giving scenarios to the listeners because, you know, the people are in lots of different situations. Say somebody's in a severe situation. You know, they're, they've had a business, it's gone bankrupt, or, you know, they've had to end the business. They owe a lot to the bank. They've got lots of credit cards going, and they feel like they're sinking there, like emotionally. They're in, in a very depressed state. They're going down that slippery slope. And, you know, emotionally it's affecting their, their family as it does and the, the people around them. What are some of the other quick fixes in terms of maybe stopping the high interest or talking to an organization in North America or somebody that can give you some practical advice and give you some emotional support? What's your experience on that? So sometimes I see that if it's just so overwhelming where we cannot get out of that debt using the method that I just explained, You may need to see a credit counselor or a credit repair specialist. And I'm not against those. Uh, It just may not be my first go-to. If it's something that we can fix within the home, then if we have to step outside of the home, like going to a doctor, those credit repair specialists will know how to work with other agencies, maybe negotiate down your balance or to negotiate down the interest rate, or possibly they'll help you find other money that can be applied to that quickly. And if you're in the situation where you have to file for bankruptcy, bankruptcy is not the end of the world. I know that it will stay on your credit report for a number of years. However, it gives you the time to reset, to understand how this happened. Sometimes it's not your fault. But then also, how do we prevent this from happening again? So if you pull someone out of debt too quickly, they have to understand how they got into the situation so that it doesn't happen again. So it gives you a little bit of time to reset and absorb and figure out a new game plan. So don't look at it always as a bad thing. It's just a way to learn. And now we know not to do that again. And that was a great point. I love that because it's all about that learned process. You know, like you say, if you're too quickly out of it, it sounds weird to say that you you didn't learn the lesson, you know. But obviously, if you go through it and you work through it with somebody who's guiding you a little bit, you understand how you got there, the logistics. And, uh, you know, that's great. You don't make that mistake again. Or if you see that mistake on the horizon again, you've got a, a warning bell, haven't you? You know, it's making me aware. There's such fear around those processes and, you know, where people end up in their life. And some people, you know, it's awful. Some people don't get through it, you know, which is terrible. I know. I know. And I I hear about these stories sometimes that people, he lost money in the stock market, he committed suicide, or he lost his business. It's not that hard. It's not that terrible. It's not the end of the world. Do you you think it's ultimately about you letting other people down, this visualization in your own mind, that you've not just let yourself down, but you've let your family, you've let your friends and your business colleagues down? Is that what it is? It's more of that and nothing about yourself. Yeah. It's, I think it's how are they going to view me? That's what they're afraid of. They don't want to face that. And there's such a stigma, especially in failure. As an entrepreneur, they'll tell you that they failed six, seven, 15 times. And that one thing that you know them for, the successful one, you didn't see all of the other hard stuff that they went through to get there. Nobody makes it on the first time out. Nobody does. You you always believe that when you start a business, and, and it doesn't matter really the reasons why you start it, it could be from the heart, you're passionate about it. You mm-hmm. want to help somebody like you do is you never start off with thinking this is going to fail. Right. So when it does fail, it's a bigger shock because it wasn't part of the scope of options. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe you should say, okay, this is what success looks like. This is what staying alive looks like. This is what failure looks like, but there's practical options there. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, maybe, and it's difficult in North America because 
is very much about image. Very materialistic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't know what's underneath there. And, and as a financial person, I tell you, everybody's a mess underneath. Yeah, totally. And that's what I used to find even in real estate. You know, people were selling their houses financially because they had to, because they had to pay bills. Mm-hmm. Not a problem with that. Let's take you on that journey. Let's make that journey as comfortable as possible and as positive as possible. Let's get you mm-hmm. to the end result. And I think that's pretty much what you're saying. You know, what you're doing is let me grab your hand. Come on, let me take you on this journey and let's get there together so that you feel good. I've achieved what I've wanted to achieve out of it. But, you know, guess what? We've got a positive result. Even if it is bankruptcy, it's just purely a mechanism. And, you know, I always used to think when I was growing up, uh, remember Gary Busey, the yes. actor, he had a whole um, motorcycle crash because he was he refused to wear a helmet. But now when you see Gary Busey, he's always using these mnemonics, failure and, and, and all these other things. And I used to think it was so hokey, but it's actually absolutely true. Fail is first attempt in learning. And if new entrepreneurs really understood that you have to try multiple times before being successful, they wouldn't let the first failure destroy them. You know, I never ever heard in that acronym fail. That's interesting, isn't it? First attempt in learning. And it, because it, I suppose when it destroys you, you don't realize it's not just the physical aspects it has on you. The mental burden is just phenomenal. And a lot of people don't recover from the mental burden. You know, it, it's one of those things where they've gone so far down the depression line as human beings were just, we're grieving. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, isn't it? But people don't realize if you take yourself out of the situation to end your pain, look at what you've done to your family. They'll never recover. So do you, have you brought people back from the edge sometimes, if you don't mind me asking? There are a few people I've heard people say, and they don't tell you right away that they were suicidal. They'll tell you after they trust you, maybe after a year. Wow. You know, thank you for reaching out to me. But I, I never told you, but that day I, I tried to commit suicide. Oh, my goodness. You don't know. They're, they just won't open up to you until after, you know, they feel as though you've, you've really tried to help them. Oh, my. You, you, the hairs in the back of your neck must go up. Yeah. You don't know. You get chills. You're like, I had no idea that was going on. You know, the universe just puts you in certain places, right? You made the call, but it wasn't supposed to be you to make the call, but you actually ended up because somebody couldn't else do it. And then that you save somebody's life, but you didn't know it. Yeah, that's the serendipity, isn't it, of it all, isn't it? Yeah. And these sort of cards just fall is that you suddenly, you didn't realize at the time, you were an integral part of, of changing the direction of that person's mm-hmm. intentions, you know? But that, yeah, that that's very humbling. Now, you did make one very interesting point, a very good point. Going bankrupt is not the end of the world. Explain what you mean by that, because people have this fear of bankruptcy and they just feel that that is the end of the world and they've lost everything. But how do you see it as a financial expert? I see it as somebody who was in a bad situation that they could not get out of financially. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that they'll never do business with you again. Some companies, it just may take them a little bit longer so that you can build up a history and show that I understand now. I know how to make my payments on time. And I don't overspend. So you shouldn't overspend in your personal life and don't overspend in business as well. But they will give you other opportunities to rebuild your credit from the bottom up again, just as though you were a newbie with no credit at all. So it just takes a little bit of time. So you can go and have that house in the future that you wanted. You can go and buy the car that you wanted in the future. And you can also have additional businesses that you wanted. There are certain people out here who file for bankruptcy regularly. I won't name names, but 
They use that as a strategy. It's it's funny. Yeah. When you say that, <laughs> you know, you look at the people that are extremely wealthy and, you know, I mean, I, we won't name names, but you probably know who it is, but we know one of those people, very high powered politician, uh, <laughs> went bankrupt four or five times. You know, I mean, it, it just sounds ridiculous to us who, who are not wealthy, you know, um, you think, yeah. well, why could you do that? But they see that as a process. That's the difference. They see it as a way right. of I finished this business. I'm going to resurrect somewhere with a different business. And that baggage is not holding the new business down. It's a way of them using it as a stepping stone. Sounds really bizarre though, doesn't it? <laughs> right. But you know, you get to go on and live. No one holds this against you. It has nothing to do with your moral character. It A bankruptcy truly means that my liabilities and what I owe is more than what I had. So it doesn't mean that you have nothing. It means that you don't have as much as you need to pay that debt. Great. And that you put that in such practical terms. That's very clear. But like you say, it's not a moral judgment on you. That's the point, isn't it? Like you say, to continue to live your life and breathe. <laughs> that's the important thing. Yes. You're halfway through listening to Honor on the Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is the amazing Renee Weaver-Requena. She is a financial literacy coach and she's taking us on the intricate journey of personal finances. Never straightforward. Next, I want to ask Renee where she's from in the US and a little bit about her background and her family. So I'm from New York, born and raised um, New York City. And my dad was blue collar worked for Department of Corrections all his life. And then my mom worked in corporate finance. She actually worked for Dun & Bradstreet in the credit reporting agency for businesses. Um, so as I was growing up, you know, very disciplined, but I always had varied interests and I wanted to be a lot of things when I was growing up, but it always circled around money. I liked how money worked. Um, I liked what I saw, not materialistic, but I felt that money could make changes. And money had a voice and it was powerful. So it could help a lot of people as well. So when I went into college, I realized maybe I should go into a, a financial career. And uh, just as I was about to declare, uh, the stock market crashed. And you know, it does that every seven to eight years. But that was my first time thinking about it. And I saw it happen. And I said, well, maybe that's not the right direction. So uh, as an economics major, I then became an accounting major as well. And my career took off along the accounting path and I became a CPA. But I had the luxury to work for different companies. And as a public accounting auditor, I was with Arthur Anderson. I was able to see many different types of companies from the inside. So many different types of industries. I worked a lot for the dot-com era where I did IPOs. So a lot of the technology companies back then wanted to be public and raise all of this money. So I was involved with that. So that was fun. And then I did a lot of other types of industries as well. But the common thing was that I learned how to look at multiple businesses from a financial standpoint. So I can tell what's healthy and what's not healthy and also what won't last the next 12 months. So that's something that auditors are responsible for disclosing to the public. If we don't believe that that company will last 12 months, we have to tell people now. Okay. I'm going to love to get into some of that business uh, information you just brought up there, but I'm going to stick with the family for a minute. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. So dad was blue collar worker. Your mom was in finance. Do you know anything about your family history going back before they got to New York? I did. And most of them were sort of farmers. Farmers. Okay. And there was no big industry. If you go generations, nobody was looking for a corporate job. Everybody had some sort of trade. Mm -hmm. Or 
set that they knew how to do to make money. Also, from your perspective, although you were surrounded by, you know, somebody who was in the finance world, um, what were you thinking at 11 or 12? I mean, did they, did you ever think you were going to become, you know, an accountant of some sort, or you were going to be doing economics? What was the 11 or 12 year old Renee sort of thinking about at school? I was very good in math and very good in science. Those were my favorite subjects. Um, So I could build things. I could take things apart. I wanted to be sort of like an engineer because I knew that I, I always felt that I could build something that people could use, something physical. No, I didn't an accountant. I didn't know what an accountant was. Well, I often ask people that question because some people would say, yeah, no, I was going, I was going to be a, you know, an Apollo 11 pilot or whatever it was, or, <laughs> you know, going to do something exotic. And I knew the reality was that I wasn't going to get there. But some people are fairly clear at quite a young age that what in- inspires them. But clearly math there and engineering and sciences really kind of piqued your interest. Okay. So tell me the progress you, you got to your, is it grade 12 in the U S as well, where you guys graduate? Mm-hmm. Did you have a clear idea that you were going to go to a particular school? Um, uh, you had that kind of all planned out or were you kind of umming and eyeing and wondering if I should go and have a year off break or do something else? Was there any hesitations there when you left grade 12? So um, coming along, as I said, I had buried interests. So my parents had buried interests. They wanted me to be a doctor. So, you know, when you're young, a lot of times, What you think you want comes from someone else, which is your parents. And that's that belief system. So I thought that I wanted to be a doctor. I thought that I wanted to be a pilot. Uh, I thought that I would go to space. (laughs) I thought that I would do things. Yes, you're right. So I went to a special STEM high school for science and technology, engineering and math. And I was an electrical engineering major. So I always thought that I could build something that somebody would want. So leaving grade 12, I didn't know where to go, really. Um, And I did not end up going down that path either. Um, So I thought that I would go into pre-med after that. That didn't work out. I thought that I would go into investment banking. That didn't work out. It's all over the place, really. How I landed is just a winding road of circumstances that happened in the economy that pushed me in one direction or the other. And that's fantastic because you sound as if you're somebody who adapts to the situation relatively easily and sees the opportunities. Tell me a little bit about, because this gets broadcast around the world. So tell us a little bit about where you live in New York, because paint a picture of, of your the place you were born and where you came from and tell me about the culture. So I come from Queens, New York. That's one of the five counties or boroughs, we call them, in New York City. And um, back then, it wasn't that crowded. Um, Working class families, everyone very friendly. Um, it was not. It was mostly an Italian and Jewish neighborhood, and I'm not. I'm African American, so we were one of the only ones in there. However, like you said, I adapt. I'm very adaptable. I get along with everyone, and everyone gets along with me. Um, so, you know, I just grow up, and I'm seeing different cultures move in and out of the neighborhood. So as they move out, um, Hispanic cultures move in, and then they move out, and Indian cultures move in. So we're the staple in the neighborhood. So I get to visit with all of the different families and I get to learn about all the different cultures and I've recognized everybody's holiday. And I just have friends who look like lots of different shades and colors. And and that's great for me. That's what I expect because that's what the world looks like. So that's what to me and that's what I want. How do you build those bridges? What's in your personality that makes you the, the people person, the bridge builder? Children don't see color. Children don't see anything. They don't see disabilities. They don't see, they don't hear accents. 
they're just, they want to be friends with everyone because you like what I like. And we're going to do this together for the next hour until my mom comes and picks me up. That's all the kids think about. So if your parent or if society doesn't step in the middle of that and stop you from thinking that way, that's how you become the bridge builder. You adapt and you get along with everybody. And my parents never stepped in that way and said, you can't be friends with this one. You can only do this type of thing. We live here. They live here. We all play together. And that's a great approach. Your parents were very forward thinking. Can I ask you a really, really poignant question? I think it's very current as well. I think from a culture point of view, what's been the biggest challenge culturally for you as you were growing up, do you think? I have to say that um, I did not go to school in my own neighborhood. I went to school in a neighborhood that was um, predominantly a different color. Uh, And that neighborhood was all one color. And they were unaccepting of me and other children like me who paid to go to private school, but then a different neighborhood. Um, So that was very difficult for us. Once we were inside of the school, we were fine. Um, Commuting to the school was fine. But if you had to walk through the town, it was a big, big problem. Yeah. Very dangerous. So that was the biggest cultural awakening for me that you really need to be careful because not everybody is accepting. Um, So finally, after getting out of that, um, you age out of that in grade eight before you're moving on to high school. Um, That's when my parents decided you go to an integrated, we don't call it integrated at that time in life, but a high school that's very diverse. It has some of everything. And the one thing that's common is everybody in there is intelligent. You have to fight to get into there with the testing. You have to fight to stay in there. It's very competitive. However, it looks like the United Nations inside of there. And that's where you begin to bridge and get used to living with everybody in the world. But you learn to become resilient. I think that's the important thing, isn't it? It is. And I think that growing up in New York City, because there are so many people who come from different places, you can be friends with a first generation person or a third generation. It doesn't matter. You have to learn how to stand your ground and not let anyone push you around and not be bullied. But you also have to have your own belief system because I can't allow you to do something to me and you have boundaries. So that makes us tough here. Um, It's a little bit harder. Some people think um, who meet us, New York City people from outside of the country or the state, they have a certain idea about how we are. We're a little tough. We're a little brash. We speak too fast. We're not friendly. It's not that at all. We're very friendly. It's just a very fast moving pace here. We have to be thick skinned and not let things affect us personally and just move on. Okay. I'm going to ask you a completely different question now. How did you get your first job? Um, well, if we go back to, um, the teen years, I delivered newspapers. Oh, wow. <laughs> Seriously. Good. <laughs> That's great. Entrepreneur very early on then. Yeah. Eh? You knew what you wanted. <laughs> it was the whole money thing. I had to have my own money, yeah. own decisions. And I imagine that's culture. That's quite a common thing in the U S for kids to get their first job delivering newspapers and things like that. Yeah. I think everyone's first job is newspapers. Absolutely. It was either that or retail and, and one of the kind of chains or something. Like that. But, uh, <laughs> so how long did you do that for before you got your real job? I'm not saying that wasn't a real job, but one way you actually had got your education and went and got that job out of school. So let's, I guess the real job came um, during high school around 17, 18. Now you're starting to think about what do I want to do? Um, what do I want to learn in school? So now you're picking up better jobs. You may be picking up an office job after the grocery store job. You're trying to figure out, let me intern here. Let me intern there and see what I like and what I don't like. And then you get into um, college or university age. 
and you're thinking about, okay, now I've chosen a major and a discipline. I really need to start to intern and think about what I want to do. I want to sample this. I want to see what it feels like and speak to people who've been in the industry, see if they like it. And then after graduation, my first job, public accounting, I became an auditor. So now once I've chosen my path of career through my major in, in university, it would be crazy for me to waste those four years and not progress with a paying job in that field. So I wasn't thinking entrepreneur back then. That wasn't in my family line um, to learn how to be my own business owner. It was go to school, get good grades, get a great job, and hope that they still offer a pension then. And when you work for them for 40 years, you'll be okay. How different it is now, isn't it? How it different. Is. <laughs> you know, so what is... um. What what did you learn in because those early years? You know, not obviously thinking entrepreneurial as such. You were just a sponge; you were absorbing it. What were the key lessons that you learned? You know, from a business point of view, and also from a personal viewpoint, that really set you up for what you do now. Um, one thing that I learned was there's no substitute for hard work. Um, the universe and God, or whomever you believe in, will not reward you with anything that you don't deserve. So you must take the time to educate yourself, whether you want to be an entrepreneur or work for someone else, you need an education in something. You have to be valuable and offer your your services. So get as much experience as possible. So I started to work. I was gaining experience. In your beginning career, you don't make a lot of money, but the trade-off is that you're learning a lot. So you learn more, learn more, you make more, learn more, learn more, make more. But as I realize, you can, sometimes you can only get to a certain threshold where I've learned as much as I can. I can only make this much money. You either have to go back to school and learn more or get a certificate in something, or you have to step back, get more experience, maybe take a pay cut. But that experience can then springboard you. So depending on the type of experience, and that's what I did, I started out with a couple of firms. They were great in what I could learn, but there was I was at the door where I couldn't go any further. I wasn't going to make much more money unless I got better experience. So I took a step back, went into one of the bigger firms for public accounting, and that experience is unmatchable anywhere else. It's hard work, a lot of hours, not a lot of pay. But when you come out, you write your own check of what you want to be paid because that experience cannot be learned anywhere else. What were some of the key things that came out of public accounting that just like blew you away or you, you gained so much knowledge on that you wouldn't normally do? You can actually sit and see through the eyes of a CEO of a major company because even though you're young, you get access to them. You have to be in the details so that you can find the things that they need to know and they trust you because they know that you're on their side. That's what you're there to do. So you can learn how to run a business. You watch that CEO and CFO. You will learn everything that you need to know. Um, so that was great to be able to learn that at a very young age. The money didn't matter back then because I was gaining experience. Where else could I learn to be a CEO without having the risk of taking on my own business? Mm-hmm. And properly measure businesses. And, and how to see, how do you deliver something to somebody of value? How do you make something that a consumer would want to buy? Whatever industry it is, there's always a buyer and a seller of something. So you get experience like that, that you can't buy anywhere else. That's just life experience. So I would say that that was the best part of all of my years of career experience. I would never trade one day for any of it. There were certain situations and environment that I would like to trade. However, I would never give up that experience because every day on this earth, 
it makes you into the person you are tomorrow. You never lose any of that information. Phenomenal. And you adapt. Yeah, you do adapt. That's the key thing. You do adapt. You did make one really interesting statement there, and I want to pick up on it. I want to drill down a little bit. How do you value a business, in your opinion? So there's a number of ways. Um, It could be based on cash flow. It's based on how much working capital do I have? Do I have enough assets? Do I have enough cash flow? You know, is it based on my stock price? It could be based on a number of things. Um, But you always want to benchmark yourself against who, who else is out there doing what I'm doing. So that's called peer reporting or benchmarking. So you always want to know who else is your competitor. You have to know anyway. Because if you want to put something out there and go after a target market, you need to know if somebody else is already doing that and tweak yours to make it a bit different. How do you stand out versus everybody else in the industry? So that's a great way to value yourself as well. You can always look at what other people are doing and see where you are. You're a lot better, a lot worse, somewhere in the middle, but it gives you an idea of what you should be tracking against. And is there any practical places that you would send somebody who's initially thinking about putting a business together, putting their business plan together, that they could maybe get a kind of a, a, a litmus test, as I call it, of where they might fall into, what area of the market they might fall into, and what value they have to be looking at? Is there great websites or apps that are available and from your experience that people can get that information from? Any company that's on the stock market, anything that's traded, publicly owned, their financial statements are out there. You can take a look at that anywhere. But then you can also go to Morningstar and look at um, different stocks, look at their ticker symbol. You can pull up history of them. Um, But then if you're a small business just starting out and you really have no background and don't know what to look for, throughout the United States, there's something called the Small Business Administration. And they have a website. So they, they offer mentoring, counseling. They'll help you put your business plan together. They'll help you understand business. They'll teach you, how do I keep track of my business? They're there for that purpose. That's great. Can you just repeat that again? So what is it called? Small Business Association. Right. And they have all those services available. That's fantastic. Yes. And what we'll do then at the end of the podcast, we'll pop a, a website link for the support uh, mechanism. That'd be lovely because then people can log on to that. Um, but if you have it to hand, we can always mention it now. I know you're just looking it up now as we speak. <laughs> Bless you. I just want to make sure that I give it to you. I believe it's .gov and not .org. Okay. That'd be great. The SBA, Small Business Administration. Yeah. B as in boy, A as in apple, dot G-O-V for government. So just repeat that again if you can, just one more time. Small Business Administration, www.s as in Sam, B as in boy, A as in apple, dot G as in government, O as in Oscar, V as in Victor. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. That's going to be very, very valuable. Okay, let's bring things up to date. So you've got all this experience. You were at... uh, Citibank, by the look of things, AIG. What really created the environment that you decided, okay, I'm going to go, I assume, on your own and become this financial literacy coach? You know, what were the the things that made you think, okay, it's the time to do it? So I had been seeing all of these different companies and industries from the backside all of these years. But the one common thing that I noticed, and it happens whenever there's an economic recovery, a stock market crash, generally it's every seven to eight years. But what happens? The companies that can no longer do business go away. New companies are born. And it's always based on how do the consumers want to receive their information? So always something new technology-wise. But what I saw from being in accounting and working for all of these companies is that I always felt as though there was lack of education to the consumers for mortgages, for credit cards, 
for all types of things that they wanted to get into. Many of the people who are in the stock market don't understand one thing about the stock market. How do they learn? They don't even think to ask. They think, I'll just become rich and a millionaire. So if there was somebody or an agency or an army of people out there educating people and helping them understand, maybe there wouldn't be so much credit card debt. It's the highest. The student loan debt is the highest. The mortgages. And then the markets crash over and over again because people are to the hilt in terms of debt and they don't know how they got there and they don't know how to get out of there. So if we could educate them on what certain things are, IRS, lenders, investing, they would understand better and make better decisions. Maybe they make the same decisions, but now they're educated decisions. So that's what I focus on, those three areas. Those are the three biggest entities in your world in the United States and probably in every other country. If you want to borrow, if you want to invest, and if you want to pay your taxes. Not if you want to, you have to. You have to, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) So in practical terms, how did you get the business started? So if somebody was looking to follow a similar career to your as entrepreneurial like you are and wants to help people with that, what were the practical steps you took to set the business up? The one is you have to believe in yourself because life is hard, whether you're working for someone else or you're working for yourself, but even harder when you work for yourself. So every day will be hard. Just know that you can do it. And then I actually work with a group of people who are like-minded and do the same thing that I do. There's a platform that we have where people can come on and they can learn and we'll train them. I'm also licensed to do what I do and I'll help them to get licensed as well. But I talk, I speak to people a lot about transitioning out of what you're doing now into something new. And I can help you do that on a flex time basis, not even full time, so that you can get your feet wet and feel confident in that you're learning something new, but you still have the security of what you're doing. So my platform allows me to lead people into a new section of their life and then show them how to make income as well. You say it in such a gentle way, in such a gracious way. And it sounds like, you know, this wouldn't be difficult for somebody who maybe has been in a professional job before. They're out of work for, say, the last six, nine months. They're really struggling to get back on their feet and they want a passion. They want a name in their life. Do you think that's something that, that somebody who's, you know, pretty competent, has that professional background, could adapt to what you do fairly easily based on what you've just said. Absolutely. Because I believe that you believing in yourself is the biggest part of the battle. You can learn anything. You learn how to live on this earth every day. Didn't we learn how to do all different sorts of things during quarantine and COVID, how to protect ourselves? And we made it through most of us. You can adapt. That's what human beings do. I believe that anybody can learn anything. As long as somebody breaks it down to the simplest basic components, anybody has the ability to learn. So take me on that journey very briefly. I'm very conscious of time. We've got about another 10 minutes, but I want to just understand the process. So if I came to you today, I said, Renick, you know, it's been wonderful. I heard the podcast that Dave Wilson did on another track and you really intrigued me. I'm interested in being coached or, you know, becoming part of the team. Take me through the kind of individual process that you would do to onboard them. So I want to meet with them first. I want to understand where their mind is, what their passion is, because I would love for them to be a crusader and be as passionate as I am about helping people and understanding money. But if they're not, they can grow that over time, that passion. They can borrow my belief. But I want to interview them and see where's their mind. Are they looking for somebody to give them instruction every day? Uh, Are they unmotivated and they need somebody to constantly push them? Whether it's my business or anyone else's, entrepreneurial life is not that way. So I want to understand their mindset, and then I want to help them personally develop into being a a business owner or an entrepreneur. 
Um, so I'll spend a lot of time with books. I love books. I love, there's different things that you can have. I love Simon Sinek. It starts with why, what is your purpose on this earth? What are the, why do you get up every day and what do you do? So your core beliefs, let's start to mold those and figure out what they are. And then I want to bring you into my training program. If that's what you want, I will teach you about the financial services industry, the stock market, the bond. How do I help people who have debt problems? All about mindset and teaching them actual tools to be able to help somebody else. And then along the way, I'll get them licensed. Well, and then that's really good because the, you hit on a really great topic at the end was the licensing aspect. It's all very well learning all this type of stuff, but you have to get proper licensing to be able to assist people. In, in the US, how does that work, the licensing? How do you approach that? So uh, every state in the United States, um, what, what I'm licensed in, aside from my CPA license, and that's not what people need, I came into that here with that, is I'm licensed in life insurance products as well as some investment products. And I use those as a tool to help people achieve their financial goals. So I will help them to be trained in that so that they too can become licensed. Now, every state in the United States controls who the licensee is and their exams. But luckily in our industry, we have something called reciprocity. You take an exam in your home state and every other state recognizes that you've taken that one exam for the state and they'll allow you to be licensed in their state as well. So it's a great industry where you don't need a lot of education, formal education, meaning I need to pay in college. This is the type of education that you get with on-the-job training. You know, that's really great to hear that because the first thing people are going to say, cha-ching, how much is it going to cost me? Because there's always a fear if you're in debt and then you have to expend even more money to be able to sort of learn how to maybe get out of that debt and then also to help other people. Is there practical ways that you can help people with any costs associated with what you do or, or what's involved? So luckily, the cost of getting into our industry is very, very cheap. There are almost no barriers. Um, so there's a light background check that's done by each state. They're just looking to make sure they want to understand what's going on in your own financial background. But the life insurance industry as a whole is very inexpensive. However, it's one of the most valuable industries in the world because we all have a finite time. And life insurance is a wealth builder. So you can use it as a tool for many different things. However, the cost of getting into here is whatever your state is requiring. And maybe it's $100, maybe even it's in less. New York is even less than that. That's incredible. Yeah. So it's very affordable and it gives people an opportunity and a lifeline they may not normally have. So just to really sum up, and as we sort of close here, what's the ideal person in your mind for this industry? What would you say is the attributes that really will help them? People who are coachable. One, that's the first thing you need to be coachable. Uh, you need to be self-motivated because I can teach you a, a number of things, but if you don't want to get out of the bed every day, I can't help you. <laughs> um, very positive and upbeat, but willing to learn most likely it's a new trade for you um, and willing to put in a little bit of extra effort. Maybe you can't watch TV for the next few days because you need to study, or maybe I've given you some notes or some things to read or some podcasts to listen to. You need to be willing to take those things on and want to personally develop. Those are the key um, characteristics, I would say. Morally ethical, um, good core ethics. So we're dealing with money we're dealing with families and we're dealing with sometimes children and the elderly. I need to work with somebody who's morally ethical. I can substitute anything else other than that. 
I'm glad you said that because in, in all my business dealings as well, I've always been morally ethical. If I didn't think it was right, I didn't do it. And I told the person, you know, and I think people really appreciate that as well when you're very upfront and you put the cards on the table. In terms of process time, if somebody came to you this week and said, you, you've piqued my interest, right? I'd love to get on board. What's the timeline is generally, you know, how long can they be before they, be, they become a practicing licensed advisor? So they'll be with uh, somebody who's more senior, like myself, for as long as they need to. So it's a self-paced environment. However, as quickly as I give you this material to study and I help you get into training, if you are quick to learn, a couple days. If you're a little bit slower and you need a little bit more time, a couple weeks, a couple of months, it's really up to the individual. It's how um, dynamic are you in terms of taking on and embracing this opportunity of transitioning out of what you're doing. And I don't necessarily say that they have to give up what they're doing. Maybe this is all millionaires have multiple streams of income these days. This could be your, your extra stream of income. And you, again, you're so right in that area. I think it's more the gig society now. People looking for the opportunities where they can achieve them mm-hmm. and being diverse. And as the word now is pivoting to where they need to go. But it's about adaptability, as you rightly said earlier on in the interview. Okay. What's the best way of anybody trying to get a hold of you? What's, what's the different ways we can contact you? I am on LinkedIn, Renee Weaver Rakenna. I am on Facebook, Renee Rakenna. I'm on Instagram as Renee Rakenna. And I also have a Calendly. So Calendly is very easy for me to book appointments, um, to do Zooms with people and meet them. So it is Calendly, C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y.com backslash Renee Rakenna. So can you just repeat that last one again? Calendly is C-A-L-C-A-L as in Larry, E-N as in Nancy, D as in dog, L as in Larry, Y as in yellow, dot com, with the backslash Renee Rakenna. Perfect. That's really, really great. Okay. <clears throat> I always ask my guests towards the end of uh, our chat, if you were 18 again, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? Stick with it. You're going to be older no matter what. Just keep doing whatever it is that you want to do. And don't worry about the years passing by. That's it. Simple as that. Hey, eh? just go for it. <laughs> just go for it. You can do it and believe in yourself. Well, Renna, it's been fantastic to speak with you. And I know that it was just completely on a whim, you know, like it was a recommendation <laughs> for somebody else. We didn't even know each other, you know, which was wonderful. No. Um, but it was so good that you gave up an hour of your time to come and talk to us, because I think what you did today was you gave lots of value and practical advice from a financial point of view. And I think the one thing I took from that was don't be frightened. You know, they're practical processes and it's not personal, is it? That's right. Nothing is ever personal. Well, listen, have a great day. Uh, and again, uh, keep doing what you're doing because I think what you're doing is so valuable and I really appreciate your time today. We really do. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having me, David. It's been a pleasure, a real pleasure. You've been listening to On and On The Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Rennie Weaver-Requena, your financial literary coach for life. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On and On The Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.